Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to see each of you here. Thankful that each of us who are here are blessed with good health. There's a lot of sickness going around. It's affecting a lot of families, a lot of individuals. I'm enjoying the studies that we're in. We're in our Sunday lessons. We're thinking about the brotherhood and the body and how it all works together. And I guess out of that, that's what my mind has been rolling around and around uh, as well as it thinks about messages. And uh, not planning to talk about our Sunday school lesson today, but uh, it does uh, go well with what was on my heart and mind this morning as it relates to the body of Christ, the brotherhood that we're part of. In John 17, Jesus used interesting terminology multiple times in his discourse there uh, in the 17th chapter. And actually, I'm going to turn there. You may if you would like to. I'm not going to read it. Just pick up a few verses. Jesus, his relationship to the society and the culture in which he walked and the disciples and to us today. And we'll pick up uh, verse 6 of John 17. Jesus said this, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Do you ever think about that? Jesus said, Heavenly Father, I'm going to manifest you to this group of 12 men that you gave me out of the world. Where did they come from? Jesus said they came out of the world, and God gave them to him. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now let's drop down to verse 11. Jesus talking about himself. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. He's talking about their location here. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Verse 12. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. He's continuing to talk about where they're located. And he's imploring the Father to keep them. We go to verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We see two statements there that Jesus makes, back and forth in those verses. In the world, of the world. In the world, of the world. He said they're in the world. Jesus said, I'm no more in the world. I'm about to come back to you. But they are still here. They're in the world. And then he, he changes and says, they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. What is he talking about? Verse 18. Thou hast sent me unto the world, even as I have sent them into the world. So he's saying, I'm coming back to you, Father, but I'm leaving them here geographically, and I'm sending them into what Jesus calls the world. Verse 23 yet. I and them, and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So Jesus said, geographically we're in the world, we're not of the world, but we're here so the world will know that Jesus Christ was sent into the world as a Savior for humanity and for mankind. So to summarize quickly, Jesus is saying, Father, here are 12 men, and there are others who will hear, hear their testimony and will also come to believe, and they're in the world, but keep them from the evil that is in the world. So he's talking about being in, but not of. What does that mean? I'd like for us to wrestle with that this morning. What does that mean? 
All right, another question. What is the golden rule? Anyone tell me what the golden rule is? What do you think, Dwayne? Can you quote it for me? As you, as you would have them doing to you, all right? Where do we find that in Scripture? Is that Scripture, or did somebody just make that up? What do you think? Is it in Scripture? You want to give me a reference? Let's try Matthew 7, verse 12. Yeah, it is in Scripture, actually. Now, I've heard people say that cleanliness is next to godliness. The Bible says so. I haven't found that one yet, but this one is in the Scripture. Matthew, the seventh chapter, and verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. So, yeah, that is Scripture, the golden rule. But did you ever notice what verses follow that? He's talking about doing to others as you'd have them do unto you, because this is the law and the prophets. Now, verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many be there which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So Jesus follows his teaching here. It's, we're winding down on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's teaching here that he gives the golden rule, and then he talks about how we're to walk in this world, in the world, but not of the world, how we are to live, how we are to walk in this life. And he says this, Enter ye in at the straight gate. What does the word straight mean? I don't know how it is for us to you farmers. You know how hard it is to keep a gate straight? It seems like between cattle and skid loaders, it's hard to keep a straight gate. This isn't talking about a straight gate. A lot of our gates have a U in them. He's talking about a narrow gate. For wide is the gate, so straight here is the, is the opposite of wide, it's narrow, and broad is the way, we know what Broadway is. I've often wondered, how did the town of Broadway get its name? Maybe some of you residents can tell me that after, after church. But he's narrow the way, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Okay. So, most of us have probably seen the the painting or the drawing that people have done, and they make it look kind of like this. Here's this really broad road that is the way of destruction. It's going down. And way over here is the narrow path. You ever seen that painting? It's this narrow path, and there's just a few people on it. There's all kinds of people on this one. There's just a few people on this one, and it kind of goes past still waters and pine trees and streams, and it looks pleasant. And you see all the uh, debauchery of the world around this. You ever seen paintings like that? Is that right? Is that accurate? Is that really how it works out in life? Well, let's, let's consider this. Let's consider these words. Straight means narrow, and narrow doesn't necessarily mean narrow. It means something different. The word that's translated narrow here is also translated in the Scripture as how they pressed grapes, like a wine press. 
So how does that fit? It is talking about being hard-pressed. You notice that Paul writes in this, in Corinthians, you can turn to Corinthians if you want to, we're going to spend the rest of the morning there. Uh, Paul writes in Corinthians about experiences that go well with this definition. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says this, um, 2 Corinthians, so it's wrong, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says this, sorry, 4.8, 2 Corinthians 4.8. For we are troubled on every side, yet not in despair. We are perplexed, but not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. And he also talks another place about being hard-pressed on every side. So Paul is saying, this is my experience in life. I'm pressed down. I'm facing pressure. I'm hard-pressed on every side. And this word narrow also means trouble and affliction. So what's wrong with this as we think about that? So if the narrow road talks about a place of pressure, it's a place of being pressed, and it's a place where that you would get the idea that it takes effort to stay there. Well, I think we need to move this road off of here, and it's actually right here. I believe it's in the middle of the broad road. It's only going the opposite direction. And I would ask you this question if you're contemplating that. Is that true or not? Jude says we must earnestly contend for the faith. So what happens if you let your guard down your Christian life and you quit seeking to follow Christ? Do you just stop? Do you just pull off the side of this nice little path over here and sit by the springs of water under a pine tree? Or do you feel, do you feel the pressure start pulling you down? We feel the pressure start pulling us down. We're out here in the middle. Now, I would take it a bit further. If this was true, I think Jesus and his disciples would have had an easier time of it. They'd have went out to the mountainside somewhere in Capernaum, and they would have started a colony, and, and it would have been fairly easy. Jesus, day after day after day, went out in the middle of the broad road, and he ministered to people's needs. He spoke to people. He put himself out there, and he was right there amongst the people, showing them another way, showing them the way to God inviting them away from the path of destruction to a relationship with God through Him, through Jesus Christ, that led upward. Okay, Apostle Paul. Had Apostle Paul went out here and, and uh, let's say he just stayed down in uh, Damascus and not went back to Jerusalem and not got involved in ministry the way he did. He had a fairly easy life. He might not have had to uh, wrote to us about he was hard-pressed and all the things that took place in his life. But you look at the life of Paul and and the rest of the apostles, 
they were out here day after day after day. And they were out here amongst the masses, and they were pointing people upward to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So I don't know if you agree with that or not. That's where I've came out. I believe the narrow path is in the middle of the broad road. It's simply going the opposite direction. And that's why we are called to be engaged in the world in which we're at. Sorry about my artistic abilities. Anyway, so why is there hardship in life? Because we go upstream. We're going against the tide. We're the upside-down kingdom. And in that, there's stress. And in that, there's struggle. And in that, we need each other. It doesn't, it's hard to be alone in that setting. We need each other. We need the body. We need to come together and work together in that. So I'd like to tell you a little story about a church that I heard of. The church had a lot of struggles. There were divisions in the church. There was partiality. Part of the church liked one leader, and part of the church liked another leader, and, and there was a lot of arguing. They had arguments about buying food on the open market, whether or not you should eat it. It may have been sacrificed to idols. They had major problems when it came to communion time, and the fact is that Scripture would indicate that some people came and just sat there and ate like gluttons, and other people actually got drunk at the communion service. There were tensions between the believers over who had the best spiritual gifts and what was the better gift to have. you have any idea where that church was at? church was Corinth. And Paul wrote two letters to that church. Now, you stop and think about that a little. That church had a lot of struggles they were going through. And Paul wrote to that church about how to deal with those issues, those struggles, how to become the body that God would have them to be, and to be on that path and show the rest of society around them what it meant to walk with Jesus Christ. I've titled this morning's message, 1 Corinthians 13, A Letter to a Struggling Church. 1 Corinthians 13, A Letter to the Struggling Church. Do we have those kind of tensions today? And we'll be real honest this morning. Do we have tensions in the bodies today? We looked at what went on with them. We think that's terrible, and it was. But I'll remind you, God didn't give up on them. He sent them a letter, and he said, there's a way to come together. There's a way for you to be the body that I want you to be. And I've been thinking about this, and I invite your response back later on this as well. I wonder if there's been a time, I'm looking at Christianity as a whole, Protestant Christianity, Christianity as a whole in the United States, I wonder if there's ever been a time when there's more divisions in Christian churches today since the Civil War. One of the reasons that we Mennonites in Virginia took on the English language uh, even prior to the Civil War and during the Civil War, that's why the Dutch died out here, is because the community people were attending the Mennonite churches. To some degree, because of of disagreement amongst the Presbyterians and the Methodists over the issue of slavery. 
They disagreed. They split over that. Some of the people who may have been part of local Presbyterian or Methodist churches who decided to retain slaves uh, started to tell the Coakleys got into the Mennonites, the Coakley name, and uh, Coakley Town Road, et cetera, et cetera. There's a little building up here, a little schoolhouse. Uh, history book says it's on hired goods property. I'm not sure. It may have actually been on James Nicely's, but beside Philip Nicely's Lane, where the Mennonites met before the First Bank Church was built, and they began using the English language in that setting, in the services, because of the local people coming, the community people who were not Mennonite, coming to the church, and some of them actually joined up and became members of the church. So that's kind of a rabbit trail. But there was a lot of division in churches during the mid-1800s. Today, almost every denomination is again dividing over the issue of morality, wokeness, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. Those same denominations, again, are dividing. But it's not just there. We all have struggles. We all struggle. And the reality of it is, I said in the Sunday school class last Sunday, when preachers get together, they talk about church life. When farmers get together, they talk about farming and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I've enjoyed interacting with other people from other denominations I meet up with and talk about church life and see where it's going there. And I think in the past several years, every church has had struggles. And if we admit it, all of us will admit that we've said and did things we wish we wouldn't have said and done. It's, there's just been, there's been tension, there's been stress as we work through issues. Um, there's extremes. I've heard of one pastor from a neighboring state to the west, it's not Mennonite, said it got bad enough in his parking lot one Sunday, he thought a fist fight was going to break out between the church members that seen things differently. And a little closer home in a more conservative circle, I know of a sewing circle where the ladies got pretty heated one day over their quilt on different opinions. And so we're not free from that. Yeah. That's who we are. Alan, thank you for your devotional this morning. <laughs> we're brotherhood. Yeah. But how do we deal with that? I'm just being honest. We've all looked back and said, well, I wish I wouldn't have said this or I wish I wouldn't have done. How do we deal with that? How do we move forward and what would God have us to do? Yes. See, we all have that potential to have a little bit of the Corinthian spirit within us. I know I do. Maybe you don't. And it's interesting, Paul writes to these believers at Corinth, and I'm not going to look at chapter 12 because our Sunday school teachers get to uh, expound on that to us the next two Sundays, other than to pick up the first and last verses of chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I wouldn't have you ignorant. So obviously, Paul had received a letter from the believers at Corinth, and they gave him a list of questions. About every two or three chapters, he says, now concerning, and he drops in, and then he expounds on the question they asked. So I believe as Paul wrote this letter, there was a number of questions came to him, and he's writing back. And at the very last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I will now show you the most excellent way. So Paul gives all kinds of instructions on how to work, and our Sunday school teachers can tell us all about that in the next two Sundays. But at the end, after he gets done with all that, he says, I will show you the absolute best way. And it's interesting for us to understand that this, this 
what we call 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Remember, the Scripture wasn't written with chapters and verses. It was a letter. So if you get a letter, you read the whole letter, we generally don't just pick out one or two paragraphs of the letter and, and, and look at it without considering the context that it's in. You get a letter from, Marie got letters from her mother, and the context was the whole letter, not just one or two parts. So the letter to the church at Corinth was a letter about how to do church right, because they were struggling. And it's fine that 1 Corinthians 13 is used at wed and other settings. It fits because what makes for good relationships in church makes good for good relationships in homes and marriages, fathers, uh, sons, mothers, daughters. It, it works. God's way works. But primarily, this is written on how to do church. And we'll look at it from that perspective this morning. How's it start out? Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am as, am as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that I could remove mountains and have no charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Those three verses are just foundational of him saying, look, He's referring back to all the things that they've been stressing over as a church. They've been talking about the gift of speaking in tongues. And he said, look, Paul said, if I could speak of all the tongues of all men, if I knew all language, if I could even come and speak to you with the language of angels of heaven, but I did that outside of the context of love for the brotherhood, it would be of no value. And then he goes into prophecy. See, they were obviously tensioning at church about prophecy. And, uh, and in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about prophecy. That's relating more to the preaching prophecy. Here he's talking about foretelling the future. And he said, though I had the gift of foretelling the future, I understand all the mysteries that we're wrestling with, and I had all knowledge. He said, if it wasn't in the context of love for the brotherhood, it is of no value. And though I have faith that I could remove mountains and have no charity, I am nothing. What's he referring to there? Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed in the midst of the sea, and it will happen. Paul's referring back, I believe, to, to Jesus' teaching. He said, if I had that faith that Jesus talked about, and you stop and think about that. If one of you brethren or sisters, you got here, and look back there at the mountains and say, I have faith that that mountain will be removed out in the Chesapeake Bay, and it would happen. We'd never get done talking about that, would we? He said, if I had that kind of faith... And I didn't have agape love for my brothers and sisters in the church. It would be of no value. And now he begins to talk about the, uh, the characteristics of this love. What is it? Someone said this, In a general sense, it is love, benevolence, and goodwill. In theology, it is the supreme love to God and universal goodwill toward all mankind. But in reality, it is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts and directing our relationships with others. I like that. In reality, it is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts in directing our relationships with others. So how does it, how does it portray itself? How does it live its life out in the midst of a spiritual brotherhood? It begins by saying, charity suffereth long. It would indicate a slowness of anger, a patient endurance, 
It's the idea of forbearance and denotes a state of mind which can bear long when oppressed or provoked. We talked about that some in our Sunday school lesson this morning. Bearing long when provoked. Charity suffereth long and is kind. It is good-natured. It is gentle, tender. The idea here is being mild even under provocation, being mild even when provoked. Notice how many of these things come natural to us? They really don't. We truly do need the love of God shed abroad in our hearts to live this out. It says it envieth not, doesn't envy. It is not jealous of another's gifts, abilities, or successes. It rejoices with those who rejoice, and it weeps with those who weep. Charity vaunteth not itself. It says charity subtract this, this agape love, it subdues pride and vainglory. It's all about the brotherhood. It's building each other up. Charity vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. Now we go to verse 5. This love that builds a brotherhood does not behave itself unseemingly. It does not conduct itself in a way that's improper or disgraceful or a manner that brings reproach. That also puts a heavy yoke on our shoulders if we think about it. Does my life is my dealing with others, is my business things, you name it, does it ever bring a reproach to the name of Jesus Christ? Does it ever bring a reproach on my brothers and sisters that I worship with? I've thought about that a lot. Now, when I go out in public, or you, and we interact with the world around us, the world that we're in, but Jesus said we're not of, in but not of, going the opposite direction, who all am I representing? First of all, I would represent myself, yes, represent family, represent community, but most seriously, more seriously, I'm representing you. And the most serious is I'm representing Jesus Christ, right? We all represent something far beyond ourselves as we profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. Think about that. We are representing what the world may view as Christianity, those around us. And we do not behave ourselves unseemingly. Seeketh not her own. Does not insist on its own rights or always getting its own way. Does not use others to gain position or rank. thought about that recently when I preached another message that related to money. I forgot to say this. The world uses individuals to gain material possessions the followers of Jesus Christ use their material possessions to gain followers for Jesus Christ. Everything we have here is going to go away. So let's use it for something eternal of great value. Seeketh not our own, is not easily provoked. This is King James. We move over to another translation. It says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects, always perseveres, etc. It's not, e oh, excuse me, it's not easily angered. Oh, both translations have that. <laughs> the word easily is not in your, if you're studying in the original language of Greek, you won't find easily there. It just simply says, love is not angered. Okay. Some translations that followed the King James picked that up as well. But 
The original says, love is not angered. There again, we have to have the love of Christ to live this out. It doesn't come natural. Thinketh no evil. What does that mean? Love thinketh no evil. Apostle Paul said, anything that's pure, lovely, good, think on these things. Is that what we think about? Is that what is the main thought process that goes through our mind? Recently, there was a survey done. Over 1,000 married couples were interviewed individually, not together. And they asked one question that was supposed to, the, the couple was supposed to think it was just a normal question, but it was actually the question they used to separate them into groups to do further research. And they were to re relate, rate their marriages on the scale of one to five, one being excellent, five being not so good, if they were happy and felt loved in their marriage. And the husbands and wives didn't know what the other one was going to say. So they took all the husbands and wives that chose one or two that they were moderately happy or very happy, and then continued to study them. Why are you so happy? And then they studied the others also in the opposite way. And what they found is this. The happiest married couples always thought the best about each other. They said, even when my spouse hurts me, I know they love me, I know they didn't do it on purpose, and I know they want what's best for me. Well, that was interesting. The ones that didn't have the happy marriages thought the opposite. So how do we translate that into the body of Christ? Do I feel like that everyone really wants what is best for the body? Is that the way I approach things? Here again, we need the love of Christ should have brought in our heart for that. But that's been a challenge to me to think about that. It says here, love thinketh no evil. Love thinks the best of the other one. So let's test ourselves on that in the coming weeks. What's the basis of my conversations with others, my inner circle of friends? Does it fit into this verse, thinking no evil? Verse 6, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Charity does not rejoice in injustice or unrighteousness, but always rejoices when the truth prevails, is the way I believe that to say. It always rejoices when the truth prevails. And what is truth? It's the Word of God. It's the way of God. It's God's way of doing things. Love beareth all things. It means to cover with silence, to endure patiently, and to forbear. You know, we're looking at this, and we may be thinking, but this is hard. There's difficulties. What about sin in the church? Do you always just act like it's not there? Well, no, that's another whole subject. But again, God gives us clear directives in His Scripture. There's two ways to deal with that. First, we go one-on-one -on -one and share with the person. Or if it's not a sin that leads to eternal, in other words, I'm talking about sin, but if it's just an offense that someone said or did something that was hurtful to us, the Bible says we can cover it over in love because love covers over a multitude of sins. God gives us two, two directives in that. He doesn't give us a third. Beareth all things. To cover with silence, to endure patiently, to forbear. 
believeth all things, looks for the best in others, to have faith in a person's spiritual well-being and to place trust in others, to see the best in others. We're back to that marriage survey again. The happy couples always seen the best in their spouse, even when they were hurt. They looked for the good and found it. C, uh, excuse me, C, 7C, believeth all things, hopeth all things. Note to myself, third part of this verse. Hopeth all things. Hope builds on the trust that we've just considered. Love is always positive and confidence outlook. It does not despair. Endureth all things. 7D, endureth all things. Love always perseveres. Love always stays true to the cause without regard for circumstances. We must have complete trust in the sovereignty of God to exhibit this virtue. I'll take us to marriage. We walk down the aisle. We stand here in front of whoever's God and these witnesses, and we say, for better or for worse, I'm in this thing all the way. I'm staying with it for better or for worse. Endureth all things. Duration of love. Recently, there was a lady, by the last name was Spooner. I'm, drawing, I'm dropping her first name now. I forget it. She lived that out. She lived a hard life. She had a husband who was unfaithful. But her husband told someone, said, oh, I could never leave her. She's the best wife I could have ever had. Oh, he left her temporarily and came back. She lived it out. I don't think we can comprehend how hard her life would have been to do that. She lived it out. Verses 8 through 13 is the duration of love. Ch love, charity never faileth. It doesn't fail. It just keeps on keeping on. It doesn't fade away. It never fails the cause. And then it gives us a comparison to other spiritual gifts that are only temporary. Where there are prophecies, they shall fail. We will not prophesy perfectly. We may attempt to predict the future. It won't always come out that way. Where there's tongues, these people are all excited about Some of them had the ability to speak in tongues. He said, it's going to cease. You're going to pass away. It's going to be over. And knowledge, some of them were extremely intelligent people there at Corinth. He said, your knowledge is going to pass away. It's going to be gone. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. On this side of glory, it's not complete. We don't understand everything. We don't know everything. Our love isn't perfect. But he said there's a time when that which is perfect is going to come. Now we're in an interim period. He goes on to say in the present situation we're limited. We're limited in everything. There's going to come a time when that limitation is taken away when we're ushered in to the presence of the Lord. That which is incomplete will vanish away. And now he's using another metaphor to help us understand that we're, we're in a process. We're, we're growing. We're not there yet. He said, when I was a child, I spake like a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put childish things away. And I've been thinking on that verse this past week. I'm not exactly sure what all he's saying here. Actually, I'm not exactly sure of all the Scripture. I understand that. But we work at, at bringing it up. But what I'm saying is, I'm not sure if he's saying, I became a man, or is he saying, in my humanity, I'm still somewhat childish, but it's my goal to put it away and put on maturity. 
For now we see through a glass darkly. See, back then the windows were not transparent like our glass today. And they could just see an image through. Light could come in, but they couldn't see through very well. Also, their mirrors were polished metal. And they didn't give a good image. He said, we see through a glass darkly. We don't see everything exactly the way it is. And I think that's a truth for us to latch on to as well. We don't see ourselves for who we truly are. We really don't. Others can help us in that. But he said, then face to face, sometime when I come into the presence of Jesus and we see him face to face, then we shall know even as we are known. He's looking forward to that. Coming into the presence of Jesus when all things are complete. And he closes out then with verse 13. He says, Now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. You see, love, this love is the only one that will endure and usher us into eternity because once we're in the presence of Jesus, we won't need faith. We'll be there. Once we're in his presence, we won't have hope. We won't need hope. We're there. But the whole atmosphere of heaven, I believe, is going to be love, complete and perfect. Love complete and perfect. So may that be what we strive for in our lives. Can this ideal become reality in our lives? Can it be reality in our lives? Brother Allen said something this morning. I quickly got my pencil out and jotted it down. He said, We choose our brethren. Made an interesting statement. And that, that has my curiosity up. How many of you here this morning did not grow up in Southeastern Conference? I'd like to see a show of hands. I won't count. Okay, how many of you did? All right, there's, I believe there's a few more who did not than what did. So Alan made a point. A lot of us chose for some reason to turn in here, and hopefully all of you that grew up here did too. But we chose to turn in here and make it our church home. And we love each other. As we apply these principles, I believe God can, can help us all to grow individually and collectively and make a beautiful congregation that loves each other and reaches out to the world around us. I'll close with this story. Brother Dale Hasey taught at Minister Study Week. He taught us so many things. He told us a story. He was telling us what to do and what not to do at church. And he said, when you come to Puerto Rico, or Costa Rica, don't do this. <laughs> and he said they had a visitor at their church one Sunday They're in Costa Rica. A lot of natives, Costa Ricans, have first-generation Christians. We're all first-generation Christians, but you know what I mean. Come to the Lord for the first time, and they're learning what it means to walk with the Lord. They had a visitor one Sunday. Dale was standing off to the side. He could hear the conversation. Some lady walked up to this man in the church and said, Are y'all liberal or conservative here? And Dale said, In my mind, I was saying, No, no, no. Don't ask our native church members that question. We don't have that conversation here. And Dale was worried. What's this native going to say? And he said the native stood there a little bit and was perplexed. He said, Well, oh, lady, I don't know. I don't know if we're conservative or liberal. And Dale was wondering, well, what's he going to say next? And next, the native said, you know what? I don't know if we're conservative or liberal, but he said, I love this church, 
and I chose to be here, and we have certain ways we do things, and I don't know if it's liberal or conservative, but I know that I love my brotherhood, and I'm happy to be here. And uh, I think Brother Dale was heart about to leap out of his chest. May that be our attitude to our brotherhood. Let's have a song. <laughs>